Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Before we started recording, we were watching a YouTube video. I mean, we talk about this more on the Patreon because, you know, there are, there are certain things we like to mostly limit to just the hardcore fans. Certain subjects that we don't, we don't want to get contaminated by the broader universe. But we were watching this video of, you know, a certain YouTuber we like who goes to a lot of conventions, movie conventions, you know, or pop culture conventions. Are they movie conventions? I think they're more just like stuff conventions right (laughs) well i mean they're movie conventions in the sense that you see the same five characters on every piece of merchandise (laughs) like freddy and leatherface michael myers uh, beetlejuice and things that are a little you know weird and out there like you know tim burton characters yeah kind of nerd stuff you know you don't think like other people when you like that stuff right (laughs) so we were watching this and these videos they they go to these conventions all the time right and we've lived vicariously through them at many a comic-con many a horror con and we've seen many tables of the merch the the schlock the branded memorabilia and you said that a place like this when you were a kid <laughs> uh, you would have found this like incredibly exciting oh yeah and, but what is it to you now well i mean i mean basically every time we see them do one of these videos it's a repository of junk i mean i'm struck by the fact that wherever they go whatever state it's in whatever country it's in the tables are always the same the merch is always the same as you said already there's always like the same four or five cultural objects like it's a type of taste and cultural consumption that just seems like i don't know frozen in time is the right phrase but it just has these. it's very 1980s yeah it's sort of like neo 80s just these very fixed reference points that never seem to change it is remarkable that still you know it's freddy krueger it's jason it's it's stuff that was really popular in the 80s and I feel like other stuff hasn't really come to replace it yet in the niche fan circuit. I suppose so. I mean, it's some some of them, like the sort of bigger and more corporate conventions they go to, like the San Diego Comic-Con. What's interesting about those and... <laughs> It's not actually interesting, but uh, what's interesting about those is that you see how is that they give you a window in kind of what like the official mass culture is. And it includes everything from like, yeah, those same four or five, you know, 1980s and 90s reference points to like, you know, now it also includes the Marvel Cinematic Universe and DC Comics, like all, you know, just the biggest movies that are in theaters, the biggest franchises that exist. But the ethos of it is still kind of like, oh yeah, this is sort of a little nerdy and out there. Like, you know, you're here because you're a weirdo that uh, watches The Walking Dead or whatever. San Diego Comic-Con will have actual huge current day stars. It'll have, you know, the stars of whatever the superhero TV shows are or whatever Star Trek shows currently and, on the and, air and now. And now those are like actual actual A-listers, which they wouldn't have been before. Right. But I mean, most of the conventions we see, it's the same kind of circuit of celebrities, people who were in movies 15 years ago, kind of, that are at the same convention over and over and over again. And if I said their names and was mean like that, you'd say, oh yeah, that that makes sense. (laughs) Um, But there was one moment in one of these videos that actually I've been thinking about. uh, It struck me cold. We saw a table full of VHS tapes, and there was a special section for Friday the 13th VHS tapes, the Jason series. And our host was observing that, oh, yeah, these go for like $30 now, $35. (laughs) You can buy a beat-up secondhand copy of like a Friday the 13th spinoff for $30. See, you're you're laughing. You're laughing uh, because you you can't— That's how I'm spending my freedom dividend. You don't understand this. You don't— (laughs) 
you don't live in that world. But I was thinking about how when I was in undergrad, I bought a couple of the Friday the 13th movies on VHS from BMV, the used bookstore near us, because I've always I've always felt, you know, that series, which I like, by the way, I've always felt that that series, the most authentic way to watch it was on, you know, a VHS tape that was kind of fuzzy in that way and had the, tra- you know, whatever trailers were be- <laughs> were on the, whatever tape that was and was just a little bit shitty looking, a kind of state of the art presentation of Friday the 13th, part five, Jason lives. Oh, sorry, that's part six. <laughs> oh, my God. My God. What's happening to me? I'm not getting the title straight anymore. Uh, part five was, um, oh, my God. I forget what part five was. Part six was Jason Lives. Part seven was The New Blood. Anyway, listen, I know this series. Um, I've always felt that the VHS was the most authentic way to watch it. And um, that felt like my little secret for a while. But now it seems the market has caught up. These same VHS tapes that I bought for $4 10 or 15 years ago are now $35 because other people have figured out that this is the most authentic way to watch it. I kind of see you, Luke, in your eyes uh, rolling them maybe because, because you're thinking these tapes, these are these are junk. It's all part of a repository of junk. This is meaning that you're projecting onto these tapes. And maybe you're right. Is that, is that wrong that you think that? Well, I feel like it's, it's implicit in everything you just said. Like 10 years ago, these would have been $4 because they're literal junk that like, you know, nobody wants. Right. But now people do want them. I want. Yeah. But but, right. But what is that desire rooted in? It's the fact that they've been refurbished as now, now it's a fetish item, but it's the same object. Well, you know, everything is just junk to some degree. It's the context that it lives in that gives it meaning. I mean, if I go to the Smithsonian and I see the Ruby slippers from the wizard of Oz, I mean, in real life, they look kind of shitty. They don't actually look like ruby slippers. If they were just fucking shoes that had some red glittery crap on them, I don't think even Goodwill would take them. But because they were in the movie and because they're the most important thing in the movie and because 80 years have passed and people have loved the movie, like, you know, and, and you're saying that meaning... the same applies to, to mass produced like analog fucking VHS. Tapes. Actually, actually, like... actually, yes, because the VHS tapes look different. There's a different aesthetic in them. And, uh, you know, for certain movies, I wouldn't want that aesthetic. But then for other movies, you know, it's just like how any, you know, it's like how the sound, sorry, I'm not actually, it's not like how the sound of vinyl uh, (laughs) is different, but it's a different texture and it's a texture that's associated with a different time. And it's memories of that time that lend my VHS copy of Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan, a sense of dubious authenticity that my Blu-ray copy, which I also own, doesn't have. You're telling me that you don't have objects that seem significant to you because they carry the aura of authenticity, even though many would regard them as just junk. I can identify with that. Uh, I definitely have things that are like that. I think where I draw the line is when they're like formerly mass produced items. So, I mean, the example you gave, the reason it doesn't really work for me is like the Ruby Slipper from The Wizard of Oz. I mean, there's only one of those and it's, you know, it's attached to this very significant cultural object. Whereas like, I mean, how many VHS copies of like Friday the 13th part seven were made? Millions, probably. Also, you could just go to Goodwill, probably, or like you could go to like a, you know, adult, you uh, uh, go to Luke, like a I've, cheap store. And Luke, like, I've, I've been there and I can't find them because now all the fans <laughs> have, have figured it out. Now they're snapping uh. up the good ones. I mean, they made, they printed off probably like a million issues of Action Comics number one, the most valuable comic book in the world. And now just over the years, probably like five of them have survived the wear and tear of time. And now people are spending literally millions of dollars 
was to have that uh-huh. one formerly mass-produced first appearance of Superman. Maybe we don't need to overthink this. I mean, obviously, uh, objects you know have significance outside of their immediate use value. I think for me, it's just it's very difficult for me to just like imagine having such reverence for like these VHS tapes of like Friday the Thirteenth that you'd pay thirty dollars. If they were if they were five dollars, I would totally get it. Yeah, okay, I, I listen to that. I respect that. Can I ask if you found for five dollars a first pressing vinyl recording of Highway sixty one revisited? You know, and you put that on the turntable, would you say, wow, it's like somebody in 1960 whatever listened to this at the time and it's made it all the way here or like you know I like I remember um, I once saw Henri Langlois who ran the Cinematheque Francais I once saw his personal print of L'Age d'Or projected mm-hmm. and I thought wow you know Godard and Truffaut were probably in the audience watching this very same print and now here it's made it all the way over here but I mean it was probably one of you know a hundred prints that were struck sure. of that movie you know would you would you feel something like that yeah I mean I I think Highway 61, I need to go further back than that. But yeah, if there was an original pressing of like a Louis Armstrong recording or like an original Delta Blues recording or something, yes, absolutely. I think that would be incredible. So I mean, so an equivalent work of art, Friday the 13th, part eight, (laughs) Jason takes Manhattan, (laughs) you know, seeing it with the tracking lines and the the fuzzy color bleed and the ad for Tom Savini's special effects workshop at the beginning. Here's the thing, Will, though, don't you think based on everything we know about, you know, these, these particular vloggers who if you're a patron subscriber patreon.com slash michael and us uh you know who we're talking about but don't you think it's the case for them that you know are they even really going to watch it like isn't it really just more about it being an object don't they like the wear on the on the box like when they look at the box they're not thinking about the use value of it they're not thinking like oh here's like a shiny new thing to put on my shelf that's that's gonna look great like it's purely about just having an object that has a nostalgic uh, association of some kind i'm not sure the distinction i mean well okay but aren't they just watching the same movie at, on the like 50 dollars steelbook edition that they <laughs> that they went out and bought at best buy or whatever yeah it's the same movie but i mean it, it looks different because it's on vhs and it, it feels different because it was the tape from the time and therefore okay they were not alive for that movie coming out at the time but whoever first owned this tape was and this tape comes from the time when people were alive therefore by owning this you're almost like recapturing a little piece of the past that you couldn't be a part of i think it's one of the same reasons why a poster for the the movie Frankenstein, you know, the 1931 poster will sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because like none of us were fucking alive when that came out. It's a way of recapturing the past. And I think there's something both real and not real about that. You know, if you were making this argument and using any other example uh, besides just like a bin full of like $30 Friday the 13th VHSs, I'd be all for it. Well, we got to educate you. (laughs) We got to get you to watch uh, all 12 of them. I don't know. I am that candidate. I can build a much broader coalition to beat Donald Trump. I grew up in Shanghai, China, and I studied violin and viola. I left home at 17, joined Chinese Army Orchestra. In those days, that was one of the best career moves for many musicians. Show me the money! Show me the money! UBI is freedom. Show me what democracy looks like! Not left, not right, but forward! 
Well, our movie on this episode is My Yang Gang Diary from 2021. Uh, I mean, that should tell you pretty much what the movie is. And this was voted on by our superdelegate patron class. That's right, folks. I just want to reiterate, patreon.com slash Michael and us. You get an extra episode every week for five Yankee dollars. And the superdelegate tier, through a very flawed process of democracy, gets to nominate and vote on potential episode topics. And this is one that we definitely never would have got to. So, you know, uh, no fate but what we make, as the great philosopher Sarah Connor once said. And listen, hey, there are other ways you can get involved in the community. You think the Yang Gang is a thriving community. What if I told you about the Michael and Us community? Like, you could get out there and you could rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called now. Like and subscribe. Uh, yeah, we- yeah, I don't fully understand how it works, but apparently that, uh, that actually really does help uh, the podcast become more visible. But if you listen to the free episodes and you enjoy them, there's lots more on the Patreon, not just an extra episode a week, also interviews and bonus content and all kinds of other goodies. And well, wasn't joking, there is a thriving community at Michael and Us Nation. Some people have found their true loves there, I've heard. <laughs> um, people find lasting connections, people get married, you know, stuff like that. So get on there and find out for yourself. Patreon.com slash Michael and Us, like, subscribe and leave us a rating. Thanks, folks. All right. So my Yang Gang Diary, again, the super delegate victor it's a documentary from 2021 you can find it where all documentaries live Tubi, among other platforms and this falls in a particular category of michael and us movie the amateur campaign diary film it was directed by a no other word but amateur filmmaker named ching jul she was born in shanghai emigrated to the united states for college on a scholarship played violin professionally and now teaches it and then in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election dived headfirst into a political identity being a volunteer and avid supporter of the democratic candidate andrew yang who i'm sure everyone listening will be familiar with this documentary is nothing more or less than what it claims to be it is a diary of her participation in the campaign and all of the friends she made along the way from the streets of new york to the streets of iowa to the streets of new hampshire where i think the yang campaign finally petered out as you pointed that was that was the cresting of the yeah, wave uh, long long after as you pointed out kamala harris's campaign uh, <laughs> that's right uh, went kaput so yeah. <laughs> you know hats off to him yeah say what you want about andrew yang's lack of electoral success but he did at least make it to iowa and new hampshire so look you know we're not here to uh, dump on this film it's a very earnest piece of work over the course of the movie we meet lots of uh, very earnest and and well-meaning Andrew Yang supporters many of whom are Asian Americans so we're not here to dump on the movie I think the way I'd like to approach this film is more as a a terrain for uh, talking about Andrew Yangism and the particular brand of sort of internet fueled radical centrism that was the Andrew Yang campaign and later morphed into the unsuccessful Andrew Yang bid for the mayoralty of New York City and now the forward party today well we've seen a lot of documentaries kind of like this both at an amateur and a professional level documentaries about insurgent candidates you know forget documentaries we've just seen what this movie depicts at pretty regular intervals over the years whether it's 
Ross Perot or Ron Paul, you know, these insurgent candidates who take a couple of positions that are sort of outside the orthodoxy of, uh, or outside the strict orthodoxy of whatever party they're running for, who are sort of, you know, positioned as outsiders, disruptors, who didn't necessarily rise through the party machinery, and who, you know, as this film shows, attract a following that is not traditionally engaged in politics, or maybe discovering politics for the first and only time. And I think crucially, unlike the Bernie Sanders campaign, lack a certain uh, message discipline, you know, (laughs) like Andrew Yang obviously had a couple of platforms that that he ran on very strongly, universal basic income being the most prominent one. But as you can see in this documentary, you know, he's kind of whatever the supporters want him to be. It's more about an affect that he's projecting. More more important than universal basic income for a lot of them is the slogan, not left, not right, but forward. <laughs> a guy who's young, a guy who's... He's uh, different. Yeah, he's, he's different. And, he, and he's talking about solutions. And and he's not, yeah, he's not part of the apparatus. There's a, there's a guy who's, who's interviewed in the film and he says, like, I just love people who, who like to solve problems. And that's why I'm here so that's kind of the that that, and you you hear similar things from a lot of the supporters i mean early on in the movie we see andrew yang giving a speech where he's pitching his basic income thing which he called the freedom dividend uh basically a thousand dollars a month and you know he's pitching it as a response to deindustrialization to automation Um, i mean he says something that is uh it's very good and, and is correct which is that like what they did to all those uh industrial jobs and manufacturing jobs they're going to do that with all the service jobs, all the desk jobs as well. So that was, I suppose, you know, the the main premise of the Andrew Yang campaign. But as we see throughout this movie, the packaging was really conveyed in this slogan, not left, not right, but forward. This is still part of Andrew Yang's whole political shtick, you know, the whole identity of Andrew Yangism. This is what the forward party is all about as well. I mean, uh, there are all these kind of almost post-ideological arguments for redistribution that you hear throughout the movie. So it's kind of talking talked about as like, uh, well, this is just a return on investment, the investments we all make. Um, right. So y- one of his big ideas is there will be a, an additional tax on the big tech giants like Amazon and Google for, you know, every search we make, every Amazon purchase we make, the data that they collect from mm-hmm. us. And by the way, as a re- it seemed as a replacement for income taxes or partial replacement for right. income taxes, which, you know, don't think I agree with that. The, the data they collect collect from us, they have to pay a toll for that. Mm. And that's us selling them Mm. our data. Which, which is an interesting idea, but then when it's paired with a lot of the other stuff you hear, you know, it's very clear all this stuff is just kind of operating on the same wavelength as the system that it's criticizing. I mean, for God's sake, not left, not right, but forward. I mean, that shtick is basically, I mean, that is how, after the 1980s anyway, neoliberalism basically expresses itself. It is literally like what Tony Blair, his entire pitch for the third way was. It was like, we need to leave these categories of left and r- right behind. We need to go forward. You know, it's all the same stuff. And because of that, aside from this basic income policy, like it's not really grounded in anything. And you can you see because you meet so many of the different Yang supporters in this movie, how he's just kind of a cipher. Like there's this one guy who used to be a Trump supporter and he seems to see Yang as a sort of avatar for like reformist masculinity. Like this is like he's a he's a good role model. Like he talks about men's issues. And then one of the other volunteers, I think, helpfully interjects. Well, he also talks about women's issues. Yeah. And then and then he says, that's right. He talks about women's issues, because if we get universal basic income, 
women get that too. Mm-hmm. So yes, in the sense that women are half the population, he talks about women's issues. But that character was probably my favorite in the whole documentary because he was a trucker named Fred. And this is a character that Yang brought up in one of the debates and I think made a couple of campaign appearances with. This trucker who gave Andrew Yang a ride for a couple of hours and, and they talked and he was a hardcore Trump supporter and by the end of the ride, he was a hardcore Yang supporter. And when we meet him in this documentary, the whole side of his truck says Yang for president, and he's a full-on zealot. So basically, um, you ever heard of Andrew Yang? No, but I did see it on the side of your... Yeah, so he's a, he's a guy who's running for president, wants to give every person above 18 uh, a, a dividend. Well, I, was, I was talking about, like, you know, are you going to help? Are you going to help the working class? You know, are you going to help people of color? I think that this is an interesting lesson in just what, like, meeting a celebrity will potentially do to one's political convictions. But yeah, he, um, uh, the issue that he seems to gravitate to most of all is that Yang is the only one talking about men's issues, which I assume means, like, I don't know, like custody stuff, you know, or choice stuff. I don't know. I'm not really sure because it's pretty ill-defined, as is a lot of the stuff in the movie. As fodder for discussion, I want to bring up here a book from 2001 called The Radical Center, The Future of American Politics. Uh, This was a book by Ted Halstead and Michael Lind. And I'm bringing this up because I think that roughly every 10 or 15 years, there's some figure, you know, in the 90s, it was Ross Perot, who also talked about free trade and the process of deindustrialization, that kind of thing. Periodically, there are these efforts to start up, you know, some kind of not left, not right, but forward sort of third party. You know, there were the various things with the uh, the Reform Party, etc. You know, every election cycle when I was growing up anyway, you'd have teased the idea of some kind of, you know, yeah, Michael Bloomberg can to see, you know, uh, what if we have a candidate who's universally disliked? <laughs> he's not left, not right. He's hated by both. Um, you know, there was those articles like after 2016 where it's like, well, what if like Mark Zuckerberg ran for president? Howard Schultz, whatever. You know, there's this kind of prevailing myth of like the centrist maverick. And in 2001, Ted Halstead and Michael Lind wrote this book and they said, that America was ready for, quote, political transformations and realignments on the scale of the New Deal and Civil War. They then uh, basically make the case for what they call the progressive privatization of Social Security. And, you know, the book is just filled with these things that you could find in a Tom Friedman column. Like, you know, there's a passage about, like, quote, the rapidly emerging technologies and circumstances of the information age. So all this stuff is kind of like swirling around in in radical centrism. You often hear about the, the pace of technological change change the fact that like the new economy isn't like the old economy and like we need and therefore the new categories don't apply right like left and right don't apply we need to shake things up part of this as well is often the quite correct uh, i should add premise that the two-party system is pretty widely hated right congress has low approval ratings i mean despite the amount of sort of engagement and uh, emotion that you know the partisan divide generates it isn't really very popular like people don't like it they recognize there's something wrong And the thing about radical centrism is it always starts out from that premise, which is an entirely correct one. 
And then it just swerves back to the very kind of like bipartisan platitudes that it is ostensibly trying to steer away from. So it's always like, well, we need a third party that's rooted in like human interests and reaches across the partisan divide and, and consensus and yeah, moving beyond left and right. I mean, radical centrists are always like Washington is broken. The elites are out of touch. And that's why we need common sense solutions that reach across the aisle, which is just like, that's just the bullshit that radiates from the beltway uh, all the time. So I think it's appropriate to see Andrew Yang as part of that tradition. We hear a lot of people in this documentary give a wide variety of reasons for voting for Andrew Yang. UBI is one of them. Uh, he, he loves math. You know, he's a, he's a facts and figures kind of guy. This is one of the weirdest things about the Yang gang branding is that, as I understand it, like just the word math was part of their actual like official campaign branding. Like that's, Well, because math yeah. is non-ideological. Right. Ma- math right. is objective. Right. There's one guy who has a shirt that just says, math money marijuana you know (laughs) it's like you you can't you can't argue with math therefore why would you why would you waste your time with anything else there's during one of the many quote-unquote canvassing scenes there's like a guy where he he talks about how he spent like 30 minutes talking to somebody at the door and he's like you know uh i started talking about data science and efficacy ratios and uh yeah and and we so cool we really got into it and yeah i think that is kind of what the signifier of math is yeah evidence is is non-ideological like yeah math is non-ideological i mean one of the other slogans that was less used was make america think harder so there was which is of, a terrible slogan yeah. because who, wa- who wants to work <laughs> well you know yang didn't do very well in iowa and i think or new hampshire i think that was because there already was the pro homework candidate and his name was pete Buttigieg. <laughs> You know, there are other reasons that people vote for it. We hear a lot from immigrants and people who are unsympathetic to Trump, who, you know, are voting for him on very kind of identity politics grounds. So, yeah, Andrew Yang throughout comes across as a bit of a cipher who can be whatever people want him to be. I think we'd agree that Obama also in 2008 ran as a bit of a cipher who could be what anyone wants him to be. But like, I know there's a difference. Well, I mean, I guess the difference if we're talking about Obama in 2008, at least, is I think that he was definitely a cipher and kind of like a horoscope candidate who could be what you wanted. But at the same time, like so much of his appeal was rooted in the idea that he was building a mass movement, which is what what he said. And the mass movement was going to overthrow the Washington establishment and bring in a second new deal in response to the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, specifically do the opposite of what Bush did. That's right. End the war on terror, etc. And obviously, you know, Obama didn't want to do any of that. Don't want to get too far away from Andrew Yang here because I do I do fundamentally agree with the idea that Obama's a cipher candidate, but I always do want to just add that detail that's like, well, he was a cipher candidate, but one of the re- the reason people were actually so initially excited about him, like I think in many cases there was actually like an ideological reason for that as well. I guess Obama had a had a liberal affect whereas or a progressive affect, whereas Yang has a radical centrist, a radical centrist like subreddit affect. Right. Also, Obama had a had a ground game, which we don't see in this. Right. So Madeline, my girlfriend, was watching with us, and you know she's done a lot of uh, political organizing, canvassing. I mean, one of the things she was remarking on was just like how disorganized the canvases seemed, and you you can really see that. Like, and I mean, I guess it's anecdotal, right? Because all we see is what's coming from this woman's camera lens. But like all these stories where people like come in from a canvas. 
are like, oh, I spent 45 minutes talking to a guy about space. And it's like, uh, you, you shouldn't spend 45 minutes talking to one person. That's a waste of time. Or like on E-Day, they're like driving around some town in Iowa and they're just kind of like goofing off. And then one of them casually says something about like, oh, we, we knock on 70 doors a day. And it's like, you should be knocking on that like every 30 minutes, well, like 40 on e- minutes. On E-Day, we see, you know, a street corner where there's big posters for every other Dem candidate. And we see them putting up some Andrew Yang posters, which <laughs> I feel like if you haven't put up the posters yeah, by E-Day. You shouldn't put up signs on election day is, is a general rule. But again, I guess this is anecdotal. But from all the people we see in this documentary, you don't get the sense that there's a lot of message discipline. You don't get the sense that they all have like the same talking points. Even though UBI is the core issue, you don't sense that they have a sort of memorized two or three sentence pitch about UBI. And also you get the sense that they go to people's doors and they say, well, you know, have you have you heard about Andrew Yang? Yeah. This, this guy, Andrew Yang? Well, the thing we see Yang saying at the beginning when he's talking about his basic income as a response to deindustrialization, I mean, the point he makes where he says what they did to the, you know, manufacturing jobs, they're going to do to all the other jobs as well. Like that could have been condensed into a talking point that I think a lot of people would have been very receptive to. But yeah, that's not that's not what they lead with. What overwhelmingly comes across in this documentary is that for the filmmaker and for the other characters, I mean, maybe this is true of every political campaign to some degree or any political movement, but like they're here as much for community as anything else. The filmmaker embraces the Yang Gang identity. She's constantly saying like, oh, there's Brooklyn Yang Gang. There's the Iowa Yang Gang. At the end of the movie, there's this, you know, I think quite debatable caption that comes on screen that says it is estimated there are over two million yang gang worldwide and not to nitpick i mean it's obvious you think okay where are you where are you pulling that number from exactly but the idea that the caption identifies yang gang as if it's like a diaspora it conveys the idea that the filmmaker and perhaps many of the people who identified publicly as yang gang actually kind of like saw it as as like a group like that or, or a community rather than a political movement yeah, I think a lot of the scenes with the campaign workers are, are quite uh, are quite sweet. To oh, be honest. sure. You I know, mean, it, like, it's nice. I mean, a lot of them are very sincere. A lot, a lot of them feel like people that the Bernie campaign could have reached. There are some who we see talking about poverty and inequality and about how great it is that you know UBI could come along and make everyone's life easier in this incredibly inhumane society that we've built. And yeah, that is sweet to see. And the film basically ends the sort of like positive note it sticks in at the end is that you know when the lockdown the COVID lockdown started, uh, you know, these pandemic relief checks were sent out by the Trump administration. And there's a clip of Andrew Yang during his, you know, I guess, short lived tenure as a CNN pundit, you know, in a sense, kind of, it seems like or the film anyway, wants to take credit. Um, you yeah, know, it's people like, weren't talking about handing out checks before <laughs> Andrew Yang. People weren't talking <laughs> yeah, about yeah, a know. UBI before him. And uh, <laughs> I, don't I don't know, these COVID relief checks, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. Who here has felt like you've yanged so many people back home just by coming here, because they saw that you were making the trek. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Someone that I've been talking to about Yang for months, and who says, like, oh, he's too ahead of our time, or, like, he's not going to win, so I'm not even going to pay attention to him. Like, he's been interested, but he's like, I'm never going to... When I told him I was coming here, he's like, wait, maybe I'll come to Iowa and not (laughs) win. 
So Andrew Yang uh, obviously went on to run for mayor of New York, and I want to talk about that in a, in a moment. But, uh, you know, he's obviously doing the forward party now, um, and he, he's published this book, uh, Forward Notes on the Future of Democracy. And again, I think it's just emblematic of kind of the strengths and the then considerable limitations of this form of radical centrism. He writes in the introduction to the book, we are witnessing a cascade of crises from a pandemic to a punitive economy to police brutality to the selling of our attention and digital data to the highest bidders. Our democratic institutions are faltering right and left and our systems are not designed for speed or significant change. Trust is fading. Our political system is a fixed duopoly that will want to move slowly, if at all. Later in the book, he writes, our leaders are rewarded based not on solving problems, but on accruing resources and retaining office. Media companies have their own set of incentives that lead them to operate on a different wavelength from most of the American people. Local news is dying, and social media is driving our everyday discourse and our mental health to volatile extremes. These are all crises, and they're all linked in ways we will unpack in the pages ahead. So, as I wrote when the book came out, I mean, it's not exactly firebrand stuff, but it's not exactly wrong. Uh, unfortunately, when the Forward Party uh, launched, and I think this is in the book as well, uh, it's anchored in six guiding principles, which are, you know, supposedly the, you know, the, the anchoring values that are going to you know, break this staid, ossified, bipartisan duopoly. And I'll just say, you know, there's six of them and four of them have absolutely nothing to do with policies. That's the first thing I'll say. They are fact-based governance. That's one. Effective and modern-day government. Wait, Great. isn't that also fact-based you, governance? You would, you would hope. Uh, grace and tolerance. Um, well, that doesn't sound like fact-based <laughs> governance to me. Human-centered capitalism. And then, you know, I think the others, I don't have them in front of me here. I think the other ones are the policy ones. It's ranked choice voting and the freedom dividend, basically. I'm just saying the facts don't care about your feelings. And I'm getting a lot of feelings from numbers two to five there. <laughs> and so, you know, Yang, you know, he's somebody who's said of himself, quote, I'm not very ideological, I'm practical. When he left the Democratic Party, he said, making partisan arguments, particularly expressing what I often see as performative sentiment, is sometimes uncomfortable for me. I often think, okay, what can we actually do to solve the problem? I'm pretty sure there are others who feel the same way I do. I've seen politicians publicly eviscerate each other and then act collegial or friendly backstage. A few minutes later, a lot of it is theater. So again, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, particularly the last part anyway about the kind of spectacle of all this stuff and how, you know, a lot of the partisan stuff that really puts people off unless they're hardcore partisans, you know, people hate that stuff. And, you know, also it's not really in the service in many cases of like genuine disagreement. It's theater. But then you see the problem here, which is again, this, you know, sliding in this left, not right, not forward shtick where supposedly there's some neutral rational terrain where you can just transcend ideology, where, you know, you're making claims, you can solve problems in some domain that does not involve having any kind of, you know, ideological premise or wider analyses. And like, it's not that that's wrong. It's just not I mean, it is wrong, but it's nonsensical. It's incoherent. Like any claim, any problem that you're setting out to solve, in doing so, you are going to inevitably express value judgments, and those are going to have certain qualitative assumptions, certain beliefs built into them. So again, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's, it's nonsensical. And guess what? The people who often adopt that very same language and, you know, basically argue for this like technocratic consensus driven form of politics, turns out they do have a, a lot of uh, pretty ideological stuff they want to do. They want to do the progressive, quote unquote, privatization of Social Security. Uh, what, what was that movie we watched? Was it uh, the re not the reunited states? What was the other one that was like uh, that? The stars on strife. Stars and strife. Where the guy who's again one of these not left, not right, before problem solving guys. He's like, 
well, what if everybody, when they're born, what if they had a stake right from the beginning and they were given not a grant of $20,000, but like a, a loan? So his his non-ideological postpartisan solution is like, what if every child was born in debt to the state? <laughs> they, they had this, uh, this yeah, freedom debt. He doesn't call it a freedom dividend. He calls it something like that, that they had to pay back later. So I want to quote from something that uh, Honda Wang argued in Jacobin in a piece about Andrew Yang uh, in 2019 which, among other things, address the kind of um, ideologically conservative roots of uh, Yang's particular approach to the UBI. Wang wrote, Yang identifies the problems that are inherent to capitalism, yet somehow believes that the same market forces that create those problems can also fix them. So in other words, you know, when Andrew Yang is telling us that he's, you know, practical uh, rather than ideological, all he's really telling us is that his ideology, you know, is, is capitalism. Now, I'd sort of forgotten what happened with Andrew Yang's mayoral campaign, but there's this piece by Akella Lacey from August 15th, 2021. This was published by The Intercept. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in here that I that I actually didn't know. I mean, presumably people haven't forgotten that for several months anyway, Andrew Yang was the front runner to be mayor of New York before he was surpassed in the polls by Eric Adams, who ultimately won. And according to this piece, Yang was convinced that he was going to be mayor of New York up until a few days before before the election. I assume that early momentum had to have been name recognition, right? I think to some extent it was it was that, but I mean I also just think like there is genuine appeal to some of the things Andrew Yang says. I think that people do like a political outsider or someone they think is a political outsider. The UBI idea, I mean, I think it's one a lot of people find attractive, frankly. Like when the Yang campaign did have message discipline, like in some of those debates, he could be, you know, I think he could be effective, despite the fact that he's ultimately a pretty banal political figure. Like, I do think he stood out on stage at some of those Democratic primary debates, you know, when he's like sandwiched between, I don't know, John Hickenlooper and Eric Swalwell or something like that. But uh, this piece by a Lacey uh, basically documents what happened with Andrew Yang's campaign, noting, first of all, that not long after Yang dropped out of the presidential race last February, so February 2020, Tusk Strategies, the political consulting and lobbying firm that managed Michael Bloomberg's 2009 mayoral re-election bid, recruited him to run for mayor. The firm soon employed much of the campaign's top staff, including his co-campaign managers, senior advisors, policy director, etc. At the start, Yang was lauded as a political outsider with the clarity of vision to change New York. But by the end, he started to embody the failures of the consultant and political class his supporters at one time bet against. Yang's outlook was positive and his plans were far-reaching until people actually started asking him questions about them. And when the assertion that crime was reaching historic highs in New York City started to change the bounds of the race, Yang's big ideas were nowhere to be found. Despite palpable flaws in the soaring crime narrative, shootings and homicides have increased significantly but not consistently in 2020 and 2021, while the causes and solutions for crime surges remain far more complex than most news coverage allows, Yang ran with it, appearing loyal to some donors yet unwieldy to trusted staff. The piece then goes on to document all of this buzz that he generated. Uh, you know, there was a piece in The Atlantic where the headline was, Can Anyone Stop Andrew Yang's Campaign for New York? He raised millions of dollars. He had thousands of volunteers. The piece quotes a staffer who says, Andrew was used to the way he was on the streets of New York, getting mobbed on the streets and asked for selfies. 
this was the co-campaign manager who'd been hired through Tusk Strategies. He and I used to say, if 10% of these people vote, I'm going to win. But that energy didn't translate into votes. Despite his claim that he had more individual donors than any other candidate, and what his campaign said was the highest numbers of donors in the history of the primary and general mayoral races in the city, Yang ended up with just over 135,000 votes in total. What started as something larger than life, one staffer said, ended up being so small. Yang started out as the guy who mainstreamed the concept of universal basic income and ended by bashing homeless people in the final debate of the race. What he started with, cash relief, anti-poverty, there was hope there, said a second staffer, and we lost track of that. Yang began not just as the change candidate, but also as a lovable guy who was just out of touch, buying bananas in a shiny bodega, telling the comedian Ziwi Times Square was his favorite subway stop, and proposing tick-top hype houses to help bring back the city's nightlife. But eventually, his lack of experience stopped being funny. In April, he prompted a swift backlash after tweeting that the city wasn't enforcing rules against unlicensed street vendors. In May, voters confronted him about a tweet he wrote in support of Israel as bombs fell on Gaza. The incident lost him volunteers, many of whom later met with Yang to express their frustration. The moments showed, quote, ultimately a lack of depth of knowledge around those topics or not understanding the nuance, said one staffer, and then it fit the most potent critiques of Yang being a newcomer to politics or not having voted before. Uh, so then, you know, Yang, uh, the piece documents how Yang went on to win uh, the endorsement of an NYPD captain endowments association, which was the police union that Eric Adams uh, had once belonged to. Some of his staff said, well, if you're going to accept this endorsement, at least keep it quiet. He did not do that. He didn't listen. The, the tone of the campaign, the messaging became increasingly conservative. One staffer is quoted in the piece saying, Andrew is much more conservative than any of us knew on policing. Anyway, this is a long piece. I'm not going to read uh, all of it, but I would recommend it. If you're uh, interested in, uh, I mean, I learned a lot about it from kind of how did Andrew Yang's uh, campaign collapse and why. But it's a very interesting and well-researched piece. And I mean, a lot of it does dwell on kind of the uh, the inexperience or the perception of political inexperience. Though, of course, Yang did have this big professional firm that got Michael Bloomberg elected. And to me, that is the real story here and the story of Andrew Yang in general. You know, his whole shtick was that he was this transgressive outsider who was, you know, talking about a politics of the future and was breaking from the staid bipartisan consensus people are used to, yada, yada. And then, you know, a firm that was known for, you know, working with Michael Bloomberg asked him to run for mayor of New York. And he was like, sure. As soon as like the right advisor got in his ear and is like, stop talking about poverty. Talk about how we need to get tough on crime. Uh, it seems like uh, it seems like he did it. And, you know, I feel bad for a lot of the uh, Andrew Yang staffers, some of whom might have even appeared in this movie, I don't know, who are, who are quoted in that piece, because it seems like that genuinely did come as a surprise to them. Well, luckily, Frank the trucker still has a third Donald Trump candidacy to look forward to. Anyway, let's all keep twirling towards freedom. Perfect solution, I heard you've been losing. Be sure to be nervous, like certainly choosing. He's certainly proving and curving and cruising through everything, thrown at him, serving the truth. Ain't but chocolate. Hey, gang, gang standing up. Hey, playing James on a bus. Man, John Doe know it's us. Hey, Yang Bucks trickle up. Hey, Yang, gang standing up. Hey, playing James on a bus. Man, John Doe know it's us. I just left my school, couldn't find a pot to piss in. Harsh recidivism, need an extra extradition. Imagine giving 10 Benjamins and kids in my position. That's your decision. It's so pernicious. With your permission, I hope you're listening. I really hope you listen. We're sick and tired. Yang is breaking the silence. Y'all way too pious, accepting what you're provided. 
ride and take him all by surprise We lost the pride, he's told us where we can find it Yang bucks trickle up, hey, Yang gang standing up Hey, playing James on a bus, man, John don't know it's us Hey, Yang bucks trickle up, hey, Yang gang standing up Plain Jane's on a bus, man, John Doe knows us.